Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined today by, with my, by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Matt Rexroad, who's going to give us a rundown of the top 10 districts in California, legislative and congressional, that are being re- re- redistricted, and who's running for what, and the ultimate impact. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Hello, John and Tim. What, so here's one question, I guess, to basically start it off. Right now, up until now, our congressional dele- delegation, which I become obsessed with during redistricting, is 42 and 11, and it's going to go to 53, and it's going to be at 52 in the cycle coming up. Uh, where, do you, where are we going to lose a district, do you think? Um, well, that question's a little bit difficult to, to say. I mean, the obvious answer yeah. is we're losing the 53rd district because it no longer exists, right? But... Um, the reality is with all the retirements in Congress, I mean, you could make the argument that it was a Roy Ball, Allard, Lowenthal um, loss of a district down there in, in Los Angeles County. But um, as more and more retirements um, are happening, it's really hard to identify one particular area where we've lost a district. What's your take, Matt, on the maps? Uh, we finally got them out. They've been released by the Citizens Redistricting Commission. Uh, are they good, bad or indifferent? Do they serve their purpose or are there improvements you think should have been made there? Well, once again, I, I, I continue to make this case over and over again. The commission is a far better way to draw these maps than having the legislature do it, just in terms of desired fairness, outcomes, and everything. I do think the commission could have done a better job on some things, and we should be evaluating that over time because I think the appropriate analysis isn't, is it better than what the legislature could have done, but did they do as good a job as they could have under similar circumstances. And this commission was very different than the previous one. They were operating under this, you know, pandemic, and that that was a challenge for them in terms of the way they rolled this out. Uh, some of the districts you'd mentioned, could you get in a little bit, talk about the top 10, why they were in your top 10 group and what you're looking at with them? Well, I just, uh, when you all reached out to me and, and talked about some of the districts to highlight and out of the maps, I was looking for some things that I don't think people necessarily, I'm seeing a lot of chatter out there and Twitter and out there and political commentators. And I tried to pick ones that um, I thought were a little bit different. Uh, I had different takes on, um, especially for this next election cycle. And under the lens of I believe that 2022 will be a very good year for Republicans nationally. It shapes the outcome of what will happen politically in these districts this time. But then there's also some people's commentary seems to be on how this district will perform perform over a decade. And um, that is interesting. And there are some districts that may have very different outcomes in 2022 than they will in 2028. But um, um, we should consider what happens in 2022 in some of these districts where I think you're going to see um, some very different elections because it'll be a great year for Republicans. By the changes, you mean population shifts changing over the next decade in these districts? Uh, is it a question of the politics of the districts changing in some, some fashion? It's a question of demographic changes in some, yes, but it's also a change in terms of the overall mood of the electorate in terms of what we're going to be having and what the circumstances will be in November of 2022, um, but also what it's like to, likely to be in a, a presidential election versus a gubernatorial election. I believe that voter turnout is going to be really low this November. Um, you know, we, we don't have an announced challenger to Senator Padilla or Governor Newsom right now that I'm aware of anyway. Maybe that's changed since we started this podcast, but um, <laughs> there's not a lot at the top of the ticket to really drive voter turnout. And we had in 2018 and 2020, 
um, we had a large number of Californians that were turning out to send their message to the Trump administration. And that's not there. Democrats have control, complete control of the legislature, both houses of Congress, the presidency and the governor. And so I don't see the turnout being particularly high. In California, the legislature is overwhelmingly uh, Democratic. Um, is there any substantial change in that going forward from the new maps that you can see? I don't I don't see how Democrats aren't in the supermajority for, if not the entire decade, for most of it. There may be a couple of years where Republicans pick up some seats, maybe even in 2022 throughout the state. But over the course of the decade, their numbers, the mean uh, number they have over the decade will likely be similar to what it is right now. One of the districts you mentioned um the um, California 49th, the congressional district, is that Camp Pendleton is in that area, North San Diego County, Vista Oceanside, that area? It is. It goes from San Juan Capistrano through Camp Pendleton all the way down to Encinitas and, and down into, you know, just just west in Del Mar there along the, along the ocean. And that's a great example of a district that has, if we look at past elections, has a very different turnout in a gubernatorial election versus a presidential election. You know, John Cox, when he ran against Gavin Newsom, got 49% of the vote. Um, and, you know, President Trump got 43% of the vote. So you had a huge swing at the top of the ticket in terms of people who are voting for. And President Trump did poorly in San Diego and Orange County, without a doubt. And so this is a seat that, um, you know, we have, you know, Congressman Mike Levin will be running in this seat. I think he's got his hands full this coming election. I know he's got um, Supervisor Bartlett from Orange County will be running. And I think this is a seat that um, has, certainly has to be on the watch list where most people would say, well, this incumbent's going to do great. I'm not so sure that's the case in 2022. So, Matt, just for the benefit of our listeners who may not have seen your website. So you have put together a list of all of the districts. And when you click on them, you can click on any one of the districts and it goes in and it has some information about past voting records and you've picked some key uh, key votes to compare. And can you talk about what you have there? And what is the, the actual URL to that website for any of our listeners who may want to go look at that? It's a great, you can really burn some time like clicking through the different districts. It's pretty fun. Yeah, so the website's redistrictinginsights.com. And if you look at final maps, um, our intention is to take a look at, you can see where the commissioners lived, or actually, we don't have actually actually have exactly where the commissioners and legislators live. We ha They're randomly assigned within zip codes where they actually live. So you get an idea of, of where they would be. But we have, um, we've gone back and looked at the top of the ticket for certain uh, not only races like Trump and Cox and, and Newsom and, and Biden, but we also broke down the past congressional Republican or Democratic turnout in 2018 and 2020. Soon we'll be adding the recall data to this and update the voter registration numbers. But then probably and the thing that, you know, I'll probably point out today when we talk about some of these districts is if you go all the way down to the bottom for these districts, you can see what districts came uh, wh where this area that currently is in the district, like the we we're just talking about the 49th um, for um, Congressman Levin, if you go all the way down to the bottom, you'll see that he, um, you know, he's he represented previously 91% of the district previously under the old maps. And that makes a big difference for some of these contested races where you have Democrats on Democrats or Republicans on Republicans who represented most of the area previously. Oh, that's great. It's the um, uh, couple open districts you mentioned in your top 10 list. One was the Assembly 70th District, uh, Orange County is open. 
And the other, I think, was the Senate Fourth, which is in this area, in the Sacramento area, going up into the foothills. What happened there? Are the nobody wants nobody immediately signed up to run for these places? I guess. Well, you also have the impact on on term limits, and so one of the district you mentioned, Assembly District seventy would be one that current Assemblywoman Janet Nguyen could have run in. Um, it's a lot of her old area um, there in Orange County. It includes Garden Grove, Westminster, Fountain Valley, um, um, and that area of the state. It's a 40% Asian CBAT district. Um, Assemblywoman Nguyen re- represented 80% of it previously, but she's going to run for the state Senate along the coast. And so this seat is open. What's interesting about this seat is this is one of the few areas of the state, um, maybe the only that I can think of, where actually President Trump did better than John Cox. Uh, Trump in this district got 49 percent of the vote, whereas Cox only got 48 percent of the vote previously. It's not by much, but most in most parts of California, John Cox overperformed Trump uh, almost everywhere except for the Asian portions of of Orange County. What do you think caused that? Is that um, what does that reflect? It just the inherent conservatism of a lot of Orange County. Is it a ethnic issue that's longstanding in that area with the Vietnamese refugees first coming in there and settling well, here? People look at Orange County and they assume it's this Republican bastion that uh, we saw in 2018, where we had all these Democrats win congressional races, and mm-hmm. among all five supervisorial seats in Orange County for their board of supervisors, Joe Biden, President Biden, won every single one of them. So, so Trump did not win a single supervisorial seat in Orange County um, two years ago. And, you know, most of Orange County is fairly purple now. There's a lot of competitive elections. But President Biden at the top of the ticket won every single one of those supervisorial seats, won huge swaths of Orange County where that never was the case. 20 years ago, um, the thought that Irvine would be an overwhelmingly Democratic place would have been crazy. <laughs> That's the reality. So, Matt, can we uh, can we start at the top of the list and kind of go through and go go down the list and we'll talk about each one sure. uh, and we'll uh, we'll also post this uh, post this list on the website for, for our listeners as well. Yeah. So one of the ones just to start at the top in, in the congressional map was, um, I think, Congressional District nine, which is having some changes now because you have Congressman McNerney retiring. This is a district where Josh Harder is going to run. Um, he's represented only about 28% of this district previously. But, you know, I had this, even if McNerney um, wouldn't have retired, this is a district where John Cox got 48% of the vote. And I generally think that if Cox got 48% or higher, um, Republicans have a pretty good chance, particularly in 2022. And so um, Josh Harder is going to run in this seat. I think he's going to have his hands full against any Republican. And so um, this will be a seat that to watch. It's in the Sacramento media market. And I think a lot of our um, Sacramento friends are going to be seeing a lot of TV ads for Josh Harder and his opponent. That was a seat or that area um, was uh, uh, McNerney originally got in with, after a tough fight with Richard Pombo. Mm-hmm. And there was a heavy Republican presence there. I assume it's still there. Much of Stockton uh, is Democratic, but also there's a heavily Republican presence as you go to the West as well. So it seems to me that uh, Hart is going to have a pretty tough fight. He is. And, you know, the district goes over into Discovery Bay and includes um, it, it takes out part of Lathrop and Samaria just south of, of Stockton. Um, but um, this is a seat where where Harder is going to have his hands full. And I would just point out, and you can see this on the, on the website that we have, you know, the yes on rent control um, ballot measure only got 31 percent of the vote. And you look for like things like split roll property tax. 
it only got 40% of the vote. So this is a district that's not, um, you know, this is not a progressive district by any stretch of the imagination. One of the districts on your list, you mentioned uh, the 49th congressional district, but the 22nd congressional district, uh, um, Bakersfield, Kern County, is that, is, how's David Valadao going to do there? Well, I laugh because every two years for the last decade, um, everyone calls me and says, this is the time where finally David Valadeo is going to lose. And I know it happened in 2018 by a few hundred votes, but my guess is two years from now, people will be saying the same thing. Um, David Valadeo is just a unique guy. Um, he is uh, continues to win down here. And in this election that's coming up, um, Valadeo um, is is probably the only Republican that can win this seat. He's just that unique. And so um, I know that a lot of folks, um, you know, they look at Rudy Salas and think that he has a great chance in this district, and I'm sure that he'll be formidable. But this is the wrong year to challenge a Republican incumbent for Congress in competitive seats. And you can say you can make all kinds of arguments about how you'd like things to be one way or another. But the reality is David Valadeo is, is an incredible elected official. He's represented about half of this district before. The other parts of it come from McCarthy and Nunez. It's very Bakersfield and Kings County centric. And um, I think David Valadeo is uniquely positioned to try to win this seat. I don't know that any other Republican could. Uh, we looked at the, we mentioned the Senate District 4 open. Uh, the 6th District, Roger Nielo seems to be a candidate uh, going to be running for that at Sacramento and parts of Placer counties. What's what's that about? So in the, I have the four and six on here. So the fourth is unique because um, and Senator Andrus Borges has decided not to run for this seat. And so you have Frank Bigelow and Assemblyman Bigelow and Assemblyman Patterson, who both live in it. But I believe that both of them are in a situation where for term limits, they can't seek this seat. And so they're in this strange set of circumstances where somebody has to run for this, but there's no incumbent that lives there. So I'm actually not aware of anyone right now who's actually running for this seat that I would say, oh, yeah, they're clearly going to uh, hold the Senate district. It's just kind of the way things worked out. For oh, and I should, uh, Matt, what's a deadline for the certified list of candidates? When will we know who's in and who's out? March 11th. So we got a little we got a little ways um, and but people are announcing right now. And I should tell you that I, I threw on SD six here when we originally talked. So I'll be working with with former Assemblyman Nilo on his campaign in this seat. But it is a seat that largely was almost perfectly drawn for somebody like Roger Nilo to run. It includes, you know, Folsom and, and most, you know, Rockland and Roseville uh, includes basically the you know eastern Sacramento Arden Arcade Carmichael. It's a very Republican seat. Um, just to go by the numbers we had talked about previously, you know, Cox got, you know, 55% of the vote. Trump got 48% of the vote. This will be a Republican state Senate seat. I'm just trying to remember when was the last time Nilo was in? It hasn't been that long, has it, that he's been out? Um, it's been six or eight years, but it's been a while. How does that work with term limits? It just struck me. Uh, he's well, not, he doesn't face those limits or... Well, so everyone's now under all these different term limit equations. And so he still has eight years left to serve. Uh, he had six in the assembly and he still can serve for eight in the state Senate, the way uh -huh. under his term limit uh, package. Okay. Uh, Senate District 16 down in Kern County and a familiar name pops up, Nicole Parra. She was in the legislature too before. Uh, what's, what's happening down there? Well, so this is this is a seat where I think Republicans need to find a good candidate to run. Um, it is a seat where, you know, John Cox got, you know, almost 49 percent of the vote. So it's a, a district that has performed well for Republicans in the past. Um, it is a um, 
a seat where, you know, the rent control ballot measure got 28% of the vote. Um, you look at things like split rural property tax got 42% of the vote. Um, this is a very conservative um, part of California. And if the Republicans find a good candidate here, I think Nicole Parr is going to have her hands full. Um, the issue was a lot of people thought that Senator Hurtado, who represented a lot of this district in the past, would run here. But um, she would much rather run in that seat that's more to the north that goes from Fresno up towards Madera and Chowchilla. Um, that's a much more democratic seat. This would be a difficult challenge for any Democrat to run in. And I, I understand that um, Senator Caballero is going to have some sort of political announcement after we record this today. But as of right now, the two state senators, Caballero and uh, Hurtado, plan on running against each other. How is uh, Kevin McCarthy's influence down in that area? That's his home turf. Uh, does he have long coattails? Do Democrats really have a shot at getting something in there? Well, in in this in this seat, well, I think Kevin McCarthy has a great deal of influence in Kern County. He he has you know basically his team uh, at pretty much every level of government. Um, in some parts of this area, it's largely outside of his direct um, political influence, but he's certainly a force down in Kern County. But this is. Uh, for the Senate seat, the Senate seat is kind of outside of his area. The, the Republican Senate seat that McCarthy will run for, the the state Senate seat, or excuse me, the congressional seat that McCarthy will run for is much more similar in shape to the seat that Shannon Grove will run for. Run for. It's overwhelmingly Republican. The Shannon Grove seat to the to the east of this, you know, Donald Trump got 60 percent of the vote there. So pretty much any Republican can win there. Um, moving into the assembly, Stanislaus County. Assembly District 22, it's open right now. Is anybody on the way to declaring to jump in that race? I'm not aware of anyone right now, but this is another seat that this is a swing seat. And so this this seat will be something that's going to be hard fought for the next decade. When the commission drew this, it, it is a very much a swing seat. Um, you know, you're looking at a seat where um, Tuck, when he ran for, for superintendent of public instruction, got 57% of the vote. Poisoner in 2018 got 53% of the vote. The Dem and Republican registration are within five points of each other, actually six points of each other. But, um, you know, the the uh, more than a quarter of the district is declined to state or other. It's it's a moderate district and somebody like an Adam Gray or somebody like that would do well from the Democratic side. Um, but he's now running for Congress and an area to the south of there. Somebody like Vito Chiesa, who was a Stanislaus County supervisor, would have been great, but he's decided not to run. Um, and so I think that there's both both parties are probably looking for a candidate in this seat, and it's going to be fought out over the decade. Uh, going down the state, Assembly District 44, Desarian versus Friedman. Is that a competitive race or is that uh, not so good? Well, it's actually um, fascinating in terms of the way the commission, when they went and drew this district, because... Um, they um, both of the, these assembly members um, basically didn't have anywhere to go. And so you had um, Rivas who moved into a northern district. You had Jesse Gabriel who moved over to a district to the to the west. And so kind of the last two standing are Nazarian and Friedman. And, you know, this is a district where um, Friedman has previously represented 48 percent of the district, whereas Nazarian's represented 31 percent of the district. Um, the folks I've talked to in the third house, they kind of feel equally about both of them. And so they're going to duke it out. And it's my understanding they're going to run against each other, but we still have a lot of time until the filing deadline. If you were running one of the con congressional campaign committees, uh, say the Republican campaign committees, is there any, are there any districts here you would be sure to get some money to? 
that's always an issue that comes up every election. Well, on the congressional side, um, I think it's fair to say that that um, the ones I mentioned, the, the Stockton seats likely to be something that people look at. Um, uh-huh. The postal seat where Katie Porter will be running will be very competitive. That's not a um, slam dunk for her. She's going to have a tough run. She didn't win by that much last time and she didn't have a very good opponent. And so um, I know that she has millions of dollars, but at some point, the marginal utility of those dollars is decreased. And so I think those that seat, the Michelle Steele seat, the Levin seat that we talked about, um, those will all be seats where there's you're going to see a lot of advertising. Uh, we mentioned, excuse me, we mentioned the 70th already. The last one I want to run by, the 76th Assembly District down in San Diego with Brian Mainshine. Does he have a tough race or not? So the thing about the Mainshine seat is it's a seat that, um, I mean, to just go by the numbers, Cox got, you know, 49% of the vote in this district. It's, it's a tough seat for him. The Republican registration's 32%. The Dem registration's 35%. Um, it's a... It's a competitive seat period. And um, my understanding is that Assemblywoman Waldron has decided not to move into the seat and run against him. She and um, uh, Assemblyman Vopel are going to run against Vopel are going to run against each other. So that's that frees it up. Um, but Mainshine doesn't have a really safe seat. And even after he leaves, the seat will be competitive um, for the decade um, if they have good candidates who are recruited there. Because it once again, it's just not a safe seat. This is very much a swing seat. You know, speaking of uh, all these swing seats and and the the tough uh, election that twenty twenty two may be, you know, that you're saying it's going to favor Republicans. So, uh, coming up at the end of this month, we have a vote on universal health care, which everything I've read is going to be a tough vote for some Democrats, probably a very easy vote for every Republican uh, in the, in the legislature. But for some votes, this I mean, some Democrats, this will be a tough vote. Do you see? That is this too far uh, away from the actual election to have anything or can you already picture uh, the ads saying so and so voted for a two hundred twenty six billion dollar tax increase? I mean, does that you think that's going to play in at all or do you think other things closer to the election? will? well, I've surveyed this issue in several different races around the state, and it's the the, the numeric, the, the dollar amount we're talking about, the fiscal impact on um on the budget is enormous. And uh, there will be campaigns that are won and lost based on the vote taken on that measure. It's a big deal. Um, There's been some things written about how, you know, Assemblyman Cunningham, Jordan Cunningham along the coast, this was his issue going after his opponent, um, basically two cycles in a row. Um, Single payer healthcare is a very difficult district for Democrats to run with in these swing districts. It's, It's a difficult, difficult vote to cast. But it's a very important vote in the Dem primaries, right? And a lot of these progressive seats that are more coastal, you need to be in support of that. And so there's there's very different political calculations that are being made depending on the district you run in. And, you know, a lot of people think, I love redistricting. I, I'm obviously, I spend a lot of time on it, but it's not the only thing. A big part of it is still how well you run campaigns and who the candidates are. Um, you know, I talk about some of these swing seats, but there's been, some members who have held swing seats, and I, actually Jackie Irwin is one of them down in Ventura County. Um, she's held that pretty easily during since she you know took that seat over from Jeff Burrell. Um, she's done really well, and so um, some candidates are better than others, and they can you know lock down these seats and hold on to them. And I would argue that David Valadeo falls into that line too. He runs great campaigns. He's a good candidate, um, and you know redistricting isn't the cause of winning or losing. It's just part of the game. 
speaking of the game, there's a uh, measurement I've never heard of, and I just learned it. I heard about it this morning for the first time. I was going through some material for the podcast. It's called the Polsby Popper Score, <laughs> and it measures the Polsby Popper Score, according to PPIC, measures compactness oh. of districts. And the higher the score, the greater level of compactness, and the lower, the lower the compactness. There's a number of measures for compactness of districts, and, and um, this is where a lot of the academia regarding redistricting gets involved, and they try to measure how close it is to a square or a circle or whatever. And um, there are lots of, within Maptitude, the re, they have different measures, and we can come up with different scores on different things. You know, my criticism of that, though, is that everyone wants to talk about, you know, oh, this district looks odd or whatever else. And I'm critical on some of the districts where I think it's the commission went overboard on that. But the reality is the geography of California is such that districts are never going to be perfectly shaped like some people might like them. And just because they are oddly shaped doesn't mean they were gerrymandered. Okay. We'll have, we'll have to devote a whole show to the Polsby Popper score at some future day. Your, your listenership would go to a record low. Don't do that. <laughs> Wait, but, uh, but the thing is, Paul, Paul Mitchell would just listen over and over again. Oh, he might yeah. drive it so up. It's a, it, might, it might end up evening out. You might get a million listens. <laughs> well, Matt Rexrow, thank you very much for going through the top 10 districts for us. Uh, Tim Foster, thank you very much. Now it's time to join. Uh, we're all going to get together and talk about who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. We thought it was a pretty easy call with PG&E. Um, Gavin didn't have a good week either, but that always happens. So he'll always be on tap. We can jump on him anytime we want. But Tim, what do you think? You know, uh, I would say I thought that it was going to be PG&E. You know, they, they had a federal judge uh, suggesting, I believe he's a federal judge, suggesting that they might be broken up. You had the Mercury News calling for them to be broken up. Uh, not a good week, but PG&E might be California's favorite punching bag. They always have a bad week. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, if they're not lighting someone on fire, they're actually having a good week. I mean, then that's not a good, that's not a good place to be. Um, but Gavin Newsom was down at the site of these train thefts, which I have to say has been a fascinating story. Uh, you know, I've been following it on Twitter more than anything else. But you know, these pictures of this this train, this line of train cars with packages, as far as the eye can see, that have apparently been uh, stolen out of uh, train cars. And initially, the idea is, you know, the story was that this is this terrible thing and you have all this rampant crime. And then, of course, a day later, the story comes out that according to at least according to some sources, uh, the train company cut all of the security or most of their security. And so maybe that had more to do with it. And anyway, long story short, uh, Gavin Newsom was down there yesterday and made what some are, are claiming as a gaffe. And, you know, uh, I know that, Matt, you definitely saw that as a gaffe. So if you want to talk about your your thoughts on this. Well, I I'm uh, I clearly can. When you mentioned this this morning, I was clearly on the, the Governor Newsom train or lack of a train or dirty train or whatever uh, for him having the worst week. I'm sure that his communication staff uh, probably had coronaries when they heard him refer to his country as a third or third world. He referred to his state basically as a third world country. Um, and I I kind of laughed when I read that last night and again this morning because you know, it's it, he is the you know elected leader of that third world entity that he mentioned. But um, PG&E is, uh, I think I've been swayed actually, Tim, by your argument regarding PG&E. They, um, you know, it's 
it's really easy for all of us to have opinions when we see things that are on fire and we're critical of PG&E, but that judge spent months uh, dealing with PG&E and some of his commentary was very pointed uh, about that utility and the way they run their business. It seems like he wishes that he could continue an oversight role regarding that utility, but they have some serious internal issues in that company. And I love the guys in the blue trucks. They're out there working really hard. I don't think it's their fault. I think it's the fault of the management of the organization. Well, you know, with PG&E, over the last two or three years, there are numerous suggestions that they split up, even more than two parts. I mean, that they split up and be in their, their customer base be divided and the mayor of San Francisco was one of them that called that. Many others that it was mentioned in the legislature. But what made this so interesting was this judge suggested they be split at the very time they're emerging from bankruptcy. So they waited all this time to come out of bankruptcy. And by God, they finally did it. And just when victory is right there, the judge in the case says, you guys should be cut apart. You should be split up with the fire prone areas under one part of PG&E and the, all the other areas under the other. That's that's kind of a tough nut to, to swallow on right right there at the moment of victory. Well, and I have to say it's interesting, uh, you know, when they were talking about this, I, I can't even remember, one of the many times uh, it's it was brought up that it's very easy to administrate PG&E in a city, like say, for example, San Francisco, where everything's kind of consolidated and concise, and you could do it. I don't want to use the word profitably, but you can do it and it, it's cost effective because you're really not dealing with with that much of an infrastructure by comparison. Whereas you're talking about getting electricity out into some of the fire prone areas and the more rural things. And it's extraordinarily expensive because you have these transmission lines and you have uh, infrastructure to keep up and not that many users. And so I think that would be an interesting thing. The idea that this was going to be broken up. How do you how do you pay for that? Uh, and that's someone much smarter than me will have to, to deal with that. But I do think that would be a major issue if you if you just took the basically the unprofitable part of PG&E that, sub, that services all the rural areas and the more profitable part of PG&E that's, that serves all of the urban areas. I think that could be a major problem. Also, it reminded me immediately when I heard all this, uh, when we had our energy conference back about six months ago, uh, Assemblyman Holden I believe it was said, you know, you can change the number, you can change the Jersey, but it's still the same game. In other words, whoever takes this over is still going to have the same problem. you still still have hundred year old equipment that you're going to need to replace or fix. And it's really expensive. So anyway, long story short, this is not an easy, uh, easy question to answer. Tim, on that point, I would encourage any of you to read the Butte County district attorney's report regarding the campfire on PG&E and their behavior it is exceptional and gives you an idea in terms of some of the missteps of that utility and the way they've started fires. The Butte County District Attorney did a fabulous job of summing that up. They have pictures, it's magnificent. Really, so do me a favor and send me a link to that and I will, I'll include it in our show notes and for our, our uh, listeners who really wanna dig dirty. So, uh, you know, and I have to say this may be an inappropriate plug, but I have to say, you know, I live in Sacramento and we have SMUD here and all of this, the shenanigans with PG&E and all the nightmares I've seen, I have to say like SMUD is like the best thing about living in Sacramento. The rates are pretty low. I don't remember, remember them being pinged for lighting things on fire. You know uh, it's, it's been one of those things I've taken for granted living here for the last, you know, 50 years almost. I remember nuclear power in Sacramento here with Rancho Seco 
and our bills in Sacramento, our utility bills, I moved up from San Diego, from Southern California, was about a third what we paid down south. And I thought, go nuclear power, go nukes. Uh, nobody agreed with me. <laughs> so those are the days gone by. But, yeah, you know, if I remember right, um, we shut down Rancho Seco by a vote, and I believe that it was the first nuclear power plant closed down in the entire world by a public vote. If be I, I believe that's correct. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, we'll say goodbye. Matt Retzbrook, thank you very much. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Uh, this is John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. Thanks again. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.